This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emission Show, and salut Babette. Tonight we go up to Newcastle and the Hunter Valley to celebrate the life of an ardent Beyond Zero Emissions member, Jennifer Bates. It would have been her 40th birthday this year, and with me on Zoom I have her mother, her husband, and two friends from the Newcastle Beyond Zero Emissions group. They're embarked on a new project to transform the Hunter region away from coal. It's called Diversifying the Hunter. Jen's mother created a fundraiser called Do It For Jen. And we invite all listeners to help us reach the goal, which is now $40,000, and that would help us bring it all together. So our first guest guest is Catherine Bennett, Jennifer's mother. Catherine, welcome to the show. What was Thank it you, like, Vivian. What was it like being with Jen? Oh, she was always a very vibrant sort of person. Um, she would bring bring joy in in all sorts of ways, which I think is why my last three and a half years since she was very sadly taken from us has been to uh, to spend time in that joy rather than in the sadness that she's gone. Yeah, although she was highly recognised as an architect, she sounds like a soulful. To me, she sounds like a soulful sort of all rounder. You know, she was in a choir. She was always writing or drawing, and she travelled a lot. What What would you say were her big dreams? Um, yes, she was certainly very creative. Um, but in many ways, that culminated in her dream towards a, a, a future better planet, a planet that would be sustainable. And I know one thing that that used to really um, uh, get her very concerned, I'm not going to say depressed, but certainly um, she expressed concern and and therefore spent a lot of energy in trying to make the world a better place. Yeah. Can you expand on that a bit? You know, to this sustainable building, she went to, you know, travelled a bit looking into that. She certainly did. And when she won the um, uh, the Bayera Hadley Travel Scholarship, which is awarded by New South Wales Architects, she chose to go to a green building conference. Uh, this is back in 2001, by the way. Um, and um, that conference was in Scandinavia. And while she was there, she also visited different places in Europe. She came back very enthused about sustainability and from then on worked, I would say, tirelessly towards achieving its end. She volunteered as well um, two two, um, separate years when she took her architecture and and, um, environmental skills to developing countries. The first time to the Philippines where she was working um, with an architect to create villages for um, uh, people who were homeless. Um, and the second time when she went with, with Geordie to Bhutan, where she um, volunteered her skills to all sorts of people, including the king. 
<laughs> Look, you said your grief is that she's not here to follow through on the Hunter Diversification Project and probably other projects. And you've created a fundraiser called Do It for Jen. Why is this such an important time to do this? Why now? It, it was one of those strange culminations. Um, I had originally planned a gathering celebration for Jennifer's birthday. I always knew I needed to celebrate her 40th. Mm. It's only three and a half years since she passed, mm. um, and 40 is such an important milestone. Um, but then when COVID happened um, and the gathering was not going to, to be possible, I started rethinking um, and at that same time, diversifying the hunter was approved as the, as the BZD project. I knew absolutely with every fibre of my being that Jennifer would have been front and centre in, in that, in that um, project. Mm. And, and I felt extremely sad on her behalf that, that she isn't here because there are so many wonderful people that she would so enjoy working with on this project. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, well, she can't do it, but maybe we can do it on her behalf. So let's do it for Jen became my little tagline. Um, and it's been absolutely delightful to see on the Give Now uh, site um, some lovely comments from, from people who do still remember Jen and, mm -hmm. and um, who, who valued the work she used to do. Well, we talk now to Geordie Bates, who's with us on Zoom. Jody, as preparing for this, I received a lot of photos of you and Jen on your many exotic travels, and I loved some of the photos. One of you dancing in some sort of traditional outfit. You look like a Cossack with these boots on, dancing around, and Jen dressed up in this gorgeous traditional woman's outfit. And I heard that you both like hiking. What do you think she brought back from that experience in Bhutan? Yeah, good good question. So I think... um. You know, for, for Jen, you know, she's, um, she, she had so many sort of passionate, you know, ideals sort of driving her. I think, you know, I think her, um, we've talked about her environmental, you know, credentials and her passion in that area, um, travel as well. So I think, um, and also spirituality was a, you know, um, growing thing for her as well. She really wanted to try and, you know, give herself a better chance in, in that space, I think, of, you know, looking after herself and, and doing the right thing by herself as well. So, you know, I think those probably, um, you know, uh, at least those three things sort of coming together and Bhutan sort of gave us a, a great opportunity mm. to, to do that. And um, for me, you know, just seeing um, sort of a calm come over Jen while she was over in Bhutan and what, what, what better place to do it in the world, right, than to go over and, and uh, you know, try and try and obtain that sense of calm over, over a year. She really got into... You know, she did a lot of work as well and a lot of volunteering and uh, a lot of uh, physical exercise, which was great, but also uh, a lot of sort of well-being, um, you know, work on herself as well. And I think she just came back with a real sense of calm over her, but also, um, you know, an even more uh, driven sense, I think, of um, being able to, to achieve, uh, you know, some of the things that she wanted to achieve, particularly in the... Um, you know, environmental space. So just, you know, a real sense of purpose, but in a, you know, real calm sort of a collected sort of way. Well, Amy, um, you're one of the uh, Beyond Zero 
Missions Newcastle members. And thank you for getting all of, the, all of us together today. I, I gather that a lot of the Newcastle members really treasure knowing Jen. And I'd like to know, what do you think the values that you all share and that you could tell the listeners? Because a lot of listeners will probably really resonate with what you're trying to do. And what, what did you especially treasure about Jen? Well, I suppose I can't speak for everyone, but uh, and we'll soon hear some of the tributes. But um, I suppose I wanted to say what I hope for Jen's legacy and uh, what it will mean, uh, hopefully, for our, our um, Hunter Valley VZE group and how it relates to everyone who cares for the environment. Um, and that is that grief and trauma don't easily translate into change. Uh, but the example that Catherine and Geordie are kind of giving us is that the grief and trauma, if you process them and and you celebrate what we have, um, it can be an opening. But this, the little tribute, the toast that we'll have to thank Jen and Geordie for putting this fundraiser up, mm. um, can actually be an opportunity to process the grief of what has happened, you know, whether it's Bangladesh or whether it's the Australian bushfires or the fires in the Amazon that trying to translate the, the trauma and the grief into, into action and into change, um, that this is an opportunity for that. Um, we have had um, some responses from our, our Facebook and a few other places from our, our volunteers with a couple of anecdotes um, about Jen well, and how organised she was <laughs> and how she brought people together. I'll go now to John. Look, John, I'm hoping you'll tell the listeners about this Diversifying the Hunter project so that we understand what it's about. And how will BZE find something to offer to a community that really has the biggest coal exporting port in the world? You know, what? how are you going to shift things there? I mean, I think a lot of people are wondering how to do it, but it's the how that you have insider knowledge on. So how are you going to do it? Look, first of all, can I say that uh, Jen's values are easily um, transported uh, through the group and we're carrying on her visions. Uh, and that's really, uh, as as Catherine was saying, it will be seeing in this project. Um, Jen, Jen was very concerned about the environment and she was very well organised and she uh, she put a new emphasis on enjoying um, the the project that we're working on and this project uh, for example uh, you know the meetings were held in the pub which was completely different than before <laughs> um, it was uh, everything was sort of you know uh, collaborative and she was just just asking for people to help and and we would um, she held a couple of great events when she was uh, leading the group and and I guess what we've done is sprung board off those events and and gathered a larger crew together, and and then um, Melbourne's employed more people, and then they've swung the whole organisation behind them, uh, the hunter. Mm. So now we've got the whole of BZE focused on taking the hunter, and we'd been working on this in the background, even even when Jim was around, but in the last couple, they say three years, we've been working on this project to see how could we replace the coal-fired power stations with uh, renewables. And then more recently, uh, we've, we've decided, well, it's not just enough to get rid of the, the power stations. We have to also look at the coal mines. Mm -hmm. And, of course, then it the, the becomes diversifying, not just 
um, you know, let's get uh, repowering the hunter. So the whole spectrum, and this is where Jen was uh, instrumental. She uh, she even re- released our electric vehicle uh, plan up here in the Hunter. I was overseas at the time, and that was a great event. She held it in Lake Macquarie there with the uh, mayor, I think, or no, sorry, with the sustainability manager. And before that, she released the renewable energy superpower plan. And both those plans are actually instrumental in in the push that we're we're making for the the hunter going forward as a as a renewable and replacing uh, the coal. And this was an email that she sent to me <clears throat> probably two or three months prior to her passing. I, for one, would rather use my lifetime on Earth to make a positive contribution to the quality of all life on Earth. We have to realise that humans are part of the ecological system, not apart from it. And our survival depends on the survival of the system. While that system is ingenious at reorganising and finding new equilibriums, it can do this only to a point. There is a tipping point. Yeah. And I have to say that earlier this year, I actually started to wonder if that tipping point was going to be 2020. I might just leave you with one of the things that that she writes in in that diary, which obviously has been... Uh, a driving force for her ever since. She writes, if I can live my whole life thinking each day, if I die tomorrow, I'll still be satisfied in what I achieved during my life, then I think I will have reached the ultimate achievement. I think she did. But I guess I just want to take the opportunity to, again, like thank BZE and thank John and Amy and the, and the rest of the gang. And I think that the project is just such perfect timing and this is absolutely something that Jen would have absolutely loved to get involved and she would have thrown herself wholeheartedly into because the environmental drivers we talked about before, Jen also had a very strong sense of place. You know, she really did love her um, Newcastle and, you know, Hunter community. You know, this is, this is just such a wonderful opportunity. You know, Catherine and I have been talking about last few years about, you know, the opportunities for fundraising and, you know, projects for Jen that she would have um, become involved with and, and how we could uh, really use that legacy of hers. And I think this is just a, a fantastic opportunity that everyone can get behind. Thank you. There's a lot of love in all of this. It's it's just lovely to hear from you. And, you know, we do this work, which is sort of hard work, isn't it? The, um, yeah, trying to transform society in a way. But I love it that we're all like little bees in a hive, beavering away. We all We'll do it. And the love that you all have for Jen, I think, is probably, you know, radiating over the work that you're doing. So thank you very much for everybody. Thank you. Of all the life at your command, you have the right to make or mend, to break or blight within your might. But what will you tell yourself at night? So stand up proud, you singers all. You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow and those who tend, as those who make and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all. How? I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. 
Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. And tonight, we're having a special guest presenter, Rima Rattan from Radio 3CR. She's kindly helped me to prepare this program and to the next two interviews, you'll hear her voice. I've noticed a lot of activity lately from 350.org and Greenpeace. While we are all doing the right thing to halt the pandemic, the fossil fuel people are lobbying for more gas and coal. 350.org launched a weekly media update on the fossil fuel uh, people's activities. It's called Fossil Fuel Watch. And Rima interviews Daisy Barham. Then she talks to Nellie Stevenson about Greenpeace's report, Burnt Country. Here's a taste from the brilliant Greenpeace film called Dirty Power. I'll attach the link to that film, YouTube film, on uh, the show notes for this, and you should listen to it. It's really well done. Dirty Power. Mining billionaire Gina Reinhart is a coalition donor whose staff have included former Liberal MP Sophie Mirabella and Adam Giles, former Liberal Chief Minister of the Northern Territory. Reinhardt maintains a close relationship with former Deputy PM Barnaby Joyce, whose campaigns she's also helped fund. And the, and the Treasury brought that into effect. We believe in coal-fired power. We really do. We believe in coal-fired As co-owner of major coal mining licenses in the Galilee Basin, Reinhardt stands to receive significant benefits if the area is opened up via approval for the Adani Carmichael Mega Coal Mine, currently being pushed through by the coalition government. Adani recently received government approval for its controversial groundwater plan, despite advice from the CSIRO. Responsibility for approval fell to an ex-vice president at a mining company owned by Mitsubishi Development, co-owners of Hay Point Coal Terminal, and a portfolio of Queensland coal mines. Having quit the mining company in 2012, she became a Liberal MP the following year. That person is Environment Minister Melissa Price. Melissa Price's office told an energy company she would request a review of how coal-fired power stations can earn money from the government's emissions reduction fund after the company complained it wasn't allowed to bid into the scheme. Few ministers have been more vocal advocates for coal expansion than Federal Resources Minister Matthew Canavan. Canavan's own brother, John Canavan, a former executive at coal giant Peabody Energy, part-owns Queensland's Rolston coal mine. Canavan has ministerial responsibility for the $5 billion Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility Fund, on which five of the seven board members have strong mining industry ties. The power of the pro-coal group inside the coalition, including the influential right-wing Monash Forum, cannot be underestimated. In 2018, they blocked Malcolm Turnbull's proposed climate law, the National Energy Guarantee. 
a move that subsequently brought down his prime ministership. Hello, this is Rima Rattan from Radio 3CR. Usually I produce and present communication Mixdown, which proceeds beyond zero emissions. But Vivian has asked me to be a guest interviewer for her, so here I am. In mid-May, Greenpeace released a report and documentary called Dirty Power Burnt Country, which exposed and analysed how the fossil fuel industry maintains its power in Australia through a wide-ranging network of influence over government, politics and the media. Nellie Stevenson, Greenpeace's communications manager for Asia-Pacific, joined me a few days ago to talk about the findings of the investigation. Nellie, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. What broadly are the investigation's findings? Um, Well, I might give you a little bit of historical context, if that helps, just sort of leading into, um, because this was a secondary investigation after the first one. So in 2019, we undertook the first dirty power investigation, which was an investigation into how the coal industry influences our democracy and chokes out action on climate change. And what we found in that investigation was uh, we uncovered a tangled web of connections of coal giants, industry groups, lobbyists, staffers, powerful media organisations that all work together in this sturdy network of influence to halt any action on climate change. And this is a follow-up report. Yes, yes. So this is a follow-up report to that. So essentially the first report revealed a revolving door of staffers moving between the fossil fuel industry, the lobbying groups, the offices of our elected officials and the media. Media, and it really showed just how deep those links between the coal industry and the federal government run. You've noted in your previous report and also in this one that there's a, what you call a dark power network. Can you give an example of this for our listeners? Yeah, so uh, for example, we've got the Minerals Council of Australia. So that's the peak mining and coal industry body, which boasts an enormous budget of $204 million over the past 11 years. And so this body has a revolving door to senior positions in the coalition government. So for example, Scott Morrison's current chief of staff, John Kunkel, uh, he's a former MCA deputy CEO. Malcolm Turnbull's senior advisor on climate change, Sid Morris, was head of environment and climate policy at the MCA. And the current head of environment and climate at the MCA, Patrick Gibbons, was previously an advisor for the former Environment Minister, Greg Hunt. And so these are people from the coal industry's largest lobbying group, literally sitting in the same rooms as our federal government as some of the most powerful people or the most powerful people in the country. The documentary also describes three axes of influence. I guess what you've already mentioned are the political parties and the coal industry and its lobbying. What's the third axis of influence that that inform and underlie the public discourse about bushfires? Oh, it's very much the media. So, um, for example, uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, I'm sure many people have heard of him. If not, he's the owner of News Corp, which is the most powerful media empire in Australia. Um, and so the titles at, um, at News Corp are very strong supporters of the coal industry. And we found that um, News Corp staff have had the same sort of a revolving door approach to positions within of power within government. So um, we've had Scott Morrison's speechwriter, was former deputy chief of staff and an editor at the Korean Mail. Um, Morrison's press secretary was chief of staff at the Daily Telegraph. So we have these um, this same sort of revolving door with the media as, as we have with the coal industry. And so the, then we have the media protecting the coal industry in that way as well. In a way, I guess the defence for these people would be, well, these are people who have work experience and are experts, professionals. Why wouldn't they be employed? Well, 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, these people are all uh, very good at what they do. They've had a wealth of experience. What's most concerning and that the real core of what we're trying to get to here is that when you lay it out in this network map that's so large, so influential, so powerful, that serves really to, to accelerate the interests of the fossil fuel industry and to halt any action on climate change, which is the existential threat of our time, that's when it really becomes concerning when you look at it as part of a larger systemic picture. The investigation found quite disturbingly that more coal mines and gas projects were approved during the bushfires. Parliament wasn't sitting, so how did this happen? Well, essentially the coal industry and the fossil fuel industry continued out business as usual, despite the fact that you know Australia was going through a fossil fueled bushfire crisis, the likes of which most of us have never seen in our lifetimes. We had this entire industry just continuing on business as usual with their lobbying and their meetings. We had an extraordinary amount of meetings that happened sort of behind closed doors. We, can, uh, we accessed a number of state MPs' diaries. Unfortunately, federal diaries aren't available to the public, but state MPs showed just an insane amount of meetings between News Corp, between fossil fuel lobbyists and between our elected representatives during that time. And so one of the things our investigation revealed was that during the bushfire crisis that was driven by climate change, which is driven by the burning of coal, oil and gas, 100 million tonnes of new coal extraction was approved, 352 megawatts of fossil gas power stations were approved, and 7,000 square kilometres of new fossil fuel expansion areas were opened up across New South Wales and Queensland. So climate change denial is said to happen across several steps. Can you explain what they are to our listeners? Uh, what we found during the the most recent bushfire crisis was the um, the sort of denial at a federal level really came from in this three step process of deny, minimise, adapt. So the first lines that the federal politicians were running were very much along the lines of denying that climate change had anything to do with this. They then moved into minimising the impact of climate change because people are wise to it. You know, people have been the awareness of climate change and bushfire links has been rising over the last 10 years. And so they realised they couldn't keep denying it anymore. So they had to sort of just downplay it. Oh, it's one of many factors. And oh, the climate is changing and using this sort of hedging language that doesn't explicitly acknowledge that human caused climate change is a thing and that it's human caused climate change that's making these so much worse. It's just, oh, the climate is changing. And what that really does um, from a communications perspective is that plays into this concept of one of the popular denialist tropes of like, oh, well, the climate's always changing. Like we've had ice ages before and, and, and things like that. And so that was the second part, this sort of minimising of of climate change. And then they moved into the third part, which was adapt. And so that was really sort of pushing this this idea that's almost a doomism idea. It's sort of like, oh, well, it's too late to do anything. Climate's already changed and we've just got to adapt to it and, and do more. You know, we've got to cut down more forests. We've got to build more dams. We've got to do all of these additional destructive environmental projects yes. to supposedly, you know, fix this bushfire crisis that we know is driven by climate change, which comes from burning coal, oil and gas. Well, clearly, if we cut down all the forests and, and, and cement the ground, then there won't be any bushfires. So, I mean, maybe they're onto something, Nelly. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> Tell us about the evolution and life of the hashtag arson emergency which was sort of the driver of a misinformation campaign online yeah so the um the arson emergency hashtag was a really interesting one so initially it sort of 
bubbled along at very low levels because climate emergency was was just trending all over the world because so many people understand that there is a, a direct link between catastrophic bushfires and climate change. And so that had been trending for quite some time. And then this little thought bubble popped up of this like, oh, you know, hashtag arson emergency instead. And that sort of bubbled along at low levels. But then what we found was that any time that News Corp publications published some, you know, ridiculous think bubble or opinion piece of one of their regular commentators saying, pushing this this false idea that it was it was arson driving these bushfires, which was debunked many, many, many times by very senior people. Anytime that they pushed those ideas out and gave those column inches or printed them online, it really pushed this arson emergency campaign along. And so we found that there was actually a direct correlation between everything that they, every time they printed these stories, promoting this false narrative that that somehow arson was to blame, which it wasn't, the, this arson emergency campaign, this hashtag and, and disinformation was was just peaked online in, in traffic and retweeted by very influential conservative individuals. So your investigation also worked with some academic researchers who determined that hashtag arson emergency was amplified by bots and trolls. Can you give us some background on how they determined that? The experts that undertook that study at Queensland University of Technology found that the accounts that were peddling the arson emergency hashtag really tended to operate in very inauthentic ways. And it was very similar to what they'd seen previously in past disinformation campaigns, such as um, the way the coordinated Russian trolls operated during the 2016 US presidential election. Um, and so we found that those accounts really, really operated in a very inauthentic way, a way that doesn't reflect normal human behaviour and the way people speak and interact with each other online. And really, there was a concerted effort to try to get arson emergency as a hashtag trending to just drown out dialogue that really acknowledged the link between climate change and bushfires. A couple of years ago, I interviewed a uh, professor who specialised, he was a professor of psychology who specialised in uh, belief in misinformation and disinformation. And he noted that fact-checking often reinforces false information by, by stating it again. You know, so you have to say there is no arson. And the moment you say that or the claim that they were arsonists is not true, you've kind of reinforced that rather than actually fighting it. What sort of approach do, does Greenpeace use or what do you, what, what is the thinking around how, how to inject facts into the public discourse without repeating and reinforcing falsehoods? It's um it's a really interesting one that one and um yeah I I've been it's something that I've I've personally spent uh, a lot of my career looking at and working on is is how we can fight misinformation and how we can make sure that the right messages are getting out there and um really the biggest one is to use your frame not the opposition's frame so for example if um we've got all these right wing trolls and bots saying you know oh it was an arson emergency it's really important that we say this is a climate emergency and we say this is climate change and we don't even give oxygen to this concept of it being caused by arson because when you repeat when you repeat a myth you essentially reinforce it and there's a number of different schools of thought about that and George Lakoff um, who's a, he's an academic in the US yes. um, he does a lot of work on this and his sort of mode of thinking is if you absolutely have to repeat a myth and you may have noticed some of your sharper listeners might have noticed me doing this throughout this call is that if I have to repeat a myth 
I make sure that I debunk it at the start, repeat the myth, and then debunk it at the, at the end. So that's called that's what's called a truth sandwich. So it would be something like false claims of arson that were repeatedly debunked. So we mention arson, but it's in the context of it being false and in the context of being debunked. But that's only you only really want to do that as a last resort, and only when you can't say we know definitively that these fires were driven by climate change or these fires were ignited by by dry lightning, for instance. This sort of misinformation campaign seems to seem to just require sort of one authoritative thing to piggyback off. So the Australian's uh, article that said there are 185 arson charges laid or something like that, all the arson emergency sort of hashtag tweets or Facebook posts, they have something authoritative to link to that way, and and it sort of sort of lends them an aura of truth, doesn't it? I mean, it's 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 really fascinating because it, when it comes to you know viral disinformation like this, once the genie's out of the bottle, it's very difficult to to put it back, which is a big part of the reason that say defamation laws are the way they are in Australia. So even though an article may have um, you know maybe further edited or a headline might change after the fact to to represent correct information, once that information's out there. And and that disinformation is out there, it is really very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle, particularly when it um, adheres to people's worldview and it adheres to things that, you know, they're already they're already thinking and believing. I mean, you know, we've got a whole bunch of people out marching against 5G towers because they think it causes all sorts of things that I'm not going to repeat because I don't want to reinforce them. <laughs> yes. Uh, one of the things you note in the report is the large amount of funding, political donations, that the fossil fuel industry makes to all political parties. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so in Australia, uh, one of the things that a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of is that political parties can accept donations, similar way that charities accept donations, for instance. So as you can as you can imagine, if you put $10,000 in the back pocket of a politician and say, here's a donation to your party, by the way, I'd like to chat to you next week about something I'm particularly interested in, that's going to be a much higher likelihood of that meeting happening than if that $10,000 doesn't get donated to that party. And while at the moment in Australia it's legal and it's it's a legitimate thing that, that people do at the moment, um, all sorts of people donate to all sorts of political parties for, you know, many reasons, what's particularly concerning is the very large amounts of money that don't get declared under legal frameworks that are referred to as dark money. Um, so this is, you know, there's a certain threshold that you have to declare as a political donation, and I believe it's 13800 But anything below that, people tend to get pretty creative with that. And so one of the things that we found in this report and in this investigation is that you could donate $1,000 a hundred times, and that's not trackable and that's not traceable under the current mechanisms that we have. And so it's really, really quite imperative that we really have a, a political system that's transparent, where we can see where the money is coming and going, and ideally that doesn't let the people with the biggest wallets have the most amount of time and the most amount of say over what happens in our democracy. It's also that the states have, states and territories have stronger laws for governing political donations. It's a little disturbing that I guess they also have integrity commissions, which, and the federal government doesn't. I was about to say we've got state-based ICACs, but not federal ICACs. You know, we could access state-based ministers' diaries, but not federal-based ministers' diaries for the purpose of this investigation. And that's, I mean, it's crazy that we have such an opaque system at a federal level right now that allows these sorts of, you know, hundreds of thousands of, even millions of dollars to change hands without 
without proper public scrutiny and without Australian communities and families and voters being being aware of what actually goes on behind closed doors. Nelly, thanks for your time. What can our listeners do to change the situation? Well, essentially, we've I mean, we've seen throughout this COVID-19 crisis that really anything is possible when the political will is there and when governments put people above profit. I mean, we've we've had free childcare, we've had a lift in job seeker. Job seeker, that's the one. Thank you. Um, so we've seen throughout this COVID-19 crisis that anything is possible when the political will is there. And while some of this might seem pretty overwhelming and a lot of information to take in, we've we've really seen through this point that we can make decisions on a dime at a, at a government level that make people's lives better. And we're also seeing massive economic powerhouses with conservative governments like ours, mind you, in the UK and Germany are all well on their way to phasing out coal and we can absolutely do that here too. We could be exporting renewable energy out to the world and we've got so much sunshine and wind and we just need a government with the guts to get out of bed with the fossil fuel industry and put people and planet first. And if people have any more questions or would like to learn more, they can visit burntcountry.greenpeace.org.au. Unless enough people know about this and enough people care and get involved in the political process, the power of the coal lobby will continue. More coal will be burnt. Climate change. Global warming. We're heading down that route because of the financial muscle and the influence through these networks of the coal industry. This investigation shows what the Australian people are up against. It should be a catalyst for action to clean up our politics and end Australia's reliance on dirty coal power. Visit act.gp slash dirtypower for more information and share this video. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Hello, this is Rima Rattan again. On May 13th, 350.org Australia launched a new project called Fossil Fuel Watch as part of a national campaign calling for transparency in the government's COVID-19 response. Daisy Barham, campaigns advisor at 360 Australia, talked to me about the organisation and its new initiative. Daisy, thanks for making time to talk to me. Can we start with some information about 350.org as some of our listeners may not be familiar with the organisation? Yeah, absolutely. Great to join you, Rima. Uh, so 350 is a global organisation uh, that's focusing that focuses on uh, fighting the climate crisis. We have a really unique role to play, I think, in the climate space because 350 really prioritises climate justice. We're an organisation that truly works globally, which I, I think uh, is and can often like bring quite a unique perspective to climate um, climate campaigns. Um, one example is we talk about a people's recovery to the COVID, uh, COVID crisis because, of course, whilst um, we need to make sure that we do recover from the COVID crisis and make sure that the community's health is, mo- is looked after as well as it can be to minimise the immediate health implications of the crisis, 350 Australia and globally sees 
it as I suppose an opportunity where we can uh, not just go back to the world that we had before. We can really bring a climate justice lens um, to the way we need to rebuild after COVID um, to make sure that the people most impacted by climate change uh, are, you know, receive most of society's support. So um, it's part of a 350 Australia is part of an international movement founded by Bill McKibben in the US in 2009. When was the Australian chapter launched? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know, to be honest, Rima. I think it was just a few years after uh, Bill McKibben started it in the US uh, in 2009, as you say. So as organisations go, it's a relatively new organisation, but uh, here in Australia uh, has been around for, I think, at least six or seven years. Um, so while I was looking at your website to research, I, I didn't find any mention of any any um, First Nations people or links with First Nations groups, which obviously is an important aspect of climate justice. What plans, if any, are there within the organisation to work with Australia's First Nations peoples, um, including in leadership roles such as places on your board? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we And we certainly do have First Nations people uh, on our staff. We are quite a small team. Uh, but we do still have First Nations people on staff and take our commitment to solidarity really, you know, is a core part of of our organisation and one of our core values. And we allocate a certain amount of our um, sort of staff and capacity, like our campaign time to working on solidarity campaigns, um, which I think is, is super important. So what is the motivation for the Fossil Fuel Watch campaign? The Fossil Fuel Watch campaign was started... Uh, towards the beginning of the of the COVID crisis, we were identifying that the fossil fuel lobby saw an opportunity of COVID to push for many of the policy changes uh, that they've been calling for for years. You know, the fossil fuel lobby seems to not want to, to waste a crisis, uh, and so they were using the cover of COVID um, to push for some pretty draconian policy changes. And so 350 thought, well, we can't let that go unchallenged. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that there was a resource for community members and for journalists, for members of the public, somewhere that they could go to to see what are the things that the fossil fuel lobby is calling for um, during COVID, uh, and also to expose some of the fossil fuel industry links that the Prime Minister's top-level advisers have with the gas industry in particular. As background for our listeners, you are talking about the National COVID Code Coordination Commission that was announced on March 25th as, as having links with the fossil fuel industry. Can you can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, certainly. So it was right in the heat of the COVID crisis around March 25th uh, when Scott Morrison announced this National COVID Coordination Commission. Uh, and basically what it is, um, is it's stacked with uh, people that are gas executives. So for instance, the chair of the COVID commission is on the board, is the deputy chairman uh, of a gas company that's looking to expect, like to develop gas wells and gas projects in WA and also in South Australia. Another member of the COVID commission uh, is the head of Energy Australia, which is like one of the largest polluting companies that we have in Australia, operates out some coal and gas uh, fired power stations. And so that's just a couple of examples of the really tight links that this COVID commission has with particularly the gas industry. Uh, and it is deeply concerning. Like there was no process, no clear process as to how these people were chosen. It simply looks as though Scott Morrison thought through, all right, well, who, you know, whose advice do I want to receive uh, on, on how to sort of recover the economy during COVID uh, and picked up his, picked up the phone to his, 
use fossil fuel friends. It's yeah, because a, a lot of the noise that's been coming out from the government, or announcements rather, that's been coming from the government has been that this is going to be a gas-led recovery. I think the timing was really interesting because the National Cabinet, which is a new grouping of state premiers and chief ministers of territory, as well as the PM, was launched to deal with the pandemic, was formed on March 13th. The general travel ban was introduced on March 20th. And the guidance for people to stay at home except for essential shopping, exercise, work and study took effect from March 30th. So clearly in this busy time, the National COVID Commission, Coordination Commission gets announced on on March 25th. That in itself, I mean, it suggests a very busy time for the Prime Minister. I guess one of the um, counterpoints to, to what you suggested, uh, to what you said earlier, is that, well, these people are... Uh, industry leaders and they have expertise. What would your argument be against uh, specifically that that charge? Yeah, well, I think I think you're right. They are certainly industry leaders when it comes to developing fossil fuel projects and coal burning power stations and gas fields. Uh, and so, if that's the kind of recovery from COVID that you want, maybe they're a great selection of people. But if you're looking for a COVID recovery that you know puts people most impacted by COVID front and center. Um, so, you know, there's no real representation from tourism sector, for instance, which is really hard hit. No representatives really from the arts community um, either that we know is terribly hit. You know, hospitality is very poorly represented. And so, you know, I think we've had a bit of an insight into Scott Morrison and the government's mind as to, you know, what do they um, consider is important in society? And it seems as though they really have put the fossil fuel interests above uh, the genuine needs of people that are really hurting from COVID. Uh, and so like, that that's deeply shocking from a climate perspective. It's also sh- deeply shocking from a justice perspective um, that the people most impacted just don't have a seat at the table. There's no First Nations people on the COVID commission uh, and there seems to be no attempt to reach out really in any meaningful way to First Nations groups uh, by the COVID commission. I think at the timing, 20. 20- 25th of March, that literally was the peak. If you look at the at the chart of COVID infections in Australia, that is the peak of the of the health crisis. Um, and so understandably, Australians were very focused, you know, thinking back to that time just a few short months ago, we didn't know how significant the health impacts of this, um, of this virus were going to be. And so I think it's fair for Australians to have been focused on, you know, making sure themselves and their family and their loved ones were cared for. Uh, and so at this at the same time, Scott Morrison's coming out um, with this like very secretive body uh, is is deeply concerning. Uh, and originally, it was intended for this body to have a six-month lifespan, which would mean it, it's halfway through its life already. However, we've seen it revealed now through the Senate inquiry uh, that the government has allocated a budget for it next year uh, of, of five and a half million dollars, and they've seconded 35 staff members from the public service to support them. So this is a body that started off as a temporary thing to help get through a crisis, uh, and now it seems as though it's, it's having its role expanded and expanded, uh, and that that is deeply, deeply concerning. Do you think this idea of using a pandemic as a way to institute environmentally harmful policies is what we may be facing with the NCCC? Oh, absolutely. And we have also seen you know, it's not just the NCCC, it is also right at the heart of our government. We saw just last week uh, Scott Morrison uh, announced that he would be cutting uh, environmental protections and legislation to fast track the uh, assess- 
development and approval of major projects, so projects like mines and gas fields and coal-fired power stations. That's been echoed for many months now by the Environment Minister, Susan Lay. So it is deeply concerning that we've had, you know, we're having industry and, and big fossil fuel companies and lobby groups for years call for scrapping of our environmental laws. Uh, and now under the cover of, of a global pandemic, uh, this our own prime minister is joining in with that chorus. So the so keeping an eye on the NCCC is part of the motivation of the Fossil Fuel Watch campaign. What are the other aspects of, of, of the campaign? We're also keeping a running... uh, what we call a wish list of all of the things that the fossil fuel industry is calling for. So um, every day we scour the news, we look at media releases, uh, at government announcements, at new reports that come out from coal and gas companies and lobby groups to see, like, what is it that these companies um, are calling for? And so far there's 58 demands, so 58 policy changes or, you know, tax cuts and slashes to environment laws specific project approvals, et cetera, um, that companies and lobby groups are calling for under the cover um, of COVID, you know, whilst so much of society is sort of distracted, understandably, by dealing with this health crisis. So we're trying to make sure that those, uh, the coal and gas lobby groups don't get away with some of these things that they're calling for going unnoticed. And so we publish them all on now on our website, which is fossilfuel.watch. Can you give us some specific examples of the, of the of items from the wish list that you've compiled? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, uh, it was about four weeks ago now, the Queensland Resources Council, so this is the peak body for mining companies in Queensland, is calling on the Queensland government to expedite the assessment of new mining projects, um, so to make that, you know, approve their mines more quickly, basically, and to rewrite federal and state um, assessment processes so this isn't just a one-off change for a specific project. They want the entire assessment process uh, changed to make it quicker to approve new mines. Uh, we've also seen calls to change the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Um, so this is a funding body that is, is supposed to fund clean energy, uh, but we've seen calls uh, from the mining sector to change that body so that it not just funds like clean energy projects, um, but that it, it can also fund things like carbon capture and storage, which is something that the fossil fuel lobby has talked about for literally decades as a way of continuing to to exploit coal or gas, but be able to like harvest the, the emissions um, underground. It's completely unproven technology, uh, and yet the fossil fuel industry uh, is trying to use this crisis to give it a sort of a second push along. APIA, or the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, is calling on government to open up more land for gas exploration and development, uh, and particularly to remove bans on onshore gas extraction. So Victoria, for instance, had uh, a ban on on gas exploration and and extraction in the state. Uh, And just a couple of weeks ago, under the cover of COVID, uh, they overturned that ban. So now we can it's possible for companies to start drilling and exploring for gas in Victoria. And that's gone you know, um, relatively under the radar uh, because media is focused on other things, understandably. So the, the, the disturbing part of the pattern seems to be that you kind of, there's a crisis and we have to, or we must do something. And so we do something and it's, it's just a temporary measure. And then like the NCCC or like changing environmental regulations and a lot, permanently it seems to be to then sort of entrench 
the changes in in favor of the fossil fuel industry is this is this usually a pattern of behavior yeah it is we certainly know that when when there is a crisis such as a global health pandemic or an economic crisis you know like the gfc 10 years ago or so we know that powerful lobby groups um like the mining lobby for instance band together to put pressure exert pressure on government to make changes when they see the government is vulnerable uh, and also once when the community uh, is distracted and more likely to support these kind of things so we know in times of crisis like um like we're in at the moment that particularly in australia you know we tend to have like a relatively high level of kind of support for our leaders particularly in a crisis which then of course makes it easier for them to to do things that normally we would question more uh, and so I, I fear that that's what we're starting to see um, under the cover of COVID. You've also started a newsletter called um, Fossil Fuel Watch, where you watch for media articles. Can you share with our listeners a little bit more detail about that? Yeah, definitely. We wanted to provide a weekly digest where people could see like the full gamut of things that the fossil fuel industry is calling for each and every week. Um, any changes to policies that had been made you know, any revelations about the gas links in particular that the COVID commission members have, you know, kind of bring all this information into one place because unless you're watching it really closely, it, it's sort of, there's so many things that are going on, it's hard to paint that whole picture. Yes, and, and so we're all distracted with the illness. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so we wanted to make sure that there was one resource, particularly for journalists, um, for members of the public uh, and for politicians to see sort of get a full picture of like, okay, well, what's happened in the last week? Uh, and so, yeah, we released that every Friday. Can you give any examples of what you've noted? If, is there a pattern or anything like that that you've noted in, your, in, the, in the weekly um, newsletter that you pull together as you're researching it? One thing that does really concern me is that we are seeing, sometimes we see government responds to a demand that comes from the fossil fuel sector. So say the fossil fuel sector says, oh, we want to reduce environmental regulation. And then the government comes in and says, yes, okay, we'll do that. So that's one stream, sort of one way that change happens. But another way I think that we're seeing more and more is that government just comes out with these changes by themselves. And to me, that suggests that the fossil fuel sector uh, has a very strong role behind the scenes uh, in convincing government to come out with these policy kind of announcements seemingly on their own. Yeah, I have no doubt that the fossil fuel lobby is, is you know, behind the scenes lobbying for changes. And it, it's concerning to me that government must view the sector as being powerful enough to not even need to publicly call for these things. They can simply have, you know, meetings and use their back channels to have that kind of level of influence and, and effect over government policy. Um, so that's, that is deeply concerning. Yes, it's, it should be concerning for anyone who believes in, in, in our democracy, I suppose. Finally, what can our listeners do to help or join the campaign or learn more about it? So the best thing um, that people can do is go to fossilfuel.watch and you'll see that there's, um, along the top, there's a button you can click, which is stop the influence. Um, if you click on, on that, there's ways that you can, you can help kind of spread the word uh, and also sign our petition calling for a just recovery and a people's recovery because as much as we don't want fossil fuel investment, off the back of the COVID crisis, what we do want uh, is investment in making Australia a fairer and more just place. So the more we can show, particularly our members of parliament, that we want a positive vision, um, I think you know, the more likely that we are to see them not supporting 
dirty gas projects. So, yeah, I'd encourage people to go online and, and sign that petition. That was Daisy Barham from 350 Australia on the organisation's new national campaign, Fossil Fuel Watch, which calls for transparency in the government's COVID-19 response. Neither 3CR nor 350 Australia is suggesting any wrongdoing by any member of the NCCC body or bodies associated with them. This is Rima Rattan for Beyond Zero Emissions. Thanks tonight to our guests, Catherine Bennett, Geordie Bates, John Shiel and Amy Meehan in Newcastle. Thanks to Daisy Barham from 350.org and Nellie Stephenson at Greenpeace. The team tonight was Andy Britt, Rima Rattan, with extra tech help from 3CR's Michaela, Luke and Loretta. Many thanks to them. They bowed me out of a very tense moment. We would like to pay our respects now to the elders, past and present, of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, upon whose land we are broadcasting. We can also be heard at Radio Skid Row in Sydney, and thanks to Raoul up there. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions. And we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR community radio to keep connected to the community we'll get through this and hope to see you real soon bye the past 11 years have seen mining industry groups in australia receive over 400 million dollars in funding and the largest and richest of them is the Minerals Council of Australia, which is run by some of the world's biggest coal giants. Call the roll. We'll be here all night. Our coalition colleagues, if they're here in the room tonight, maybe if you could just stand. Of course, Melissa Christ, Environment Minister, thank you. And of course... Cause... In recent years, the MCA has run campaigns to dismantle a price on carbon and cut the renewable energy target. Isn't it amazing what this little black rock can do? And their $22 million advertising blitz against the minerals resource rent tax played a key role in the 2010 ousting of then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Well, the revolving doors issue is a significant one. 
Ian McFarlane, was the Resources Minister who scrapped the mining tax. And I hope that the sector will acknowledge uh, and demonstrate their gratitude to him uh, in his years of retirement from this place. And demonstrate their gratitude to him uh, in his years of retirement from this place. Coalition ties to the MCA run deep. John Kunkel is a former deputy CEO of the MCA and a lobbyist for Rio Tinto. Within a week of becoming Prime Minister, Scott Morrison had appointed him as his Chief of Staff. While Angus Taylor, the current Energy Minister, consulted for the MCA before becoming an MP. 